Welcome back to another Banter Banter. It is that time of year again. We just got off of a hot dog binge. I'm your host, Manny. Some people call me Mike. <laughs> I think Mike's gone off the deep end a little bit here. I'm Aaron. And together we are... Banter! Banter! banter. <laughs> oh, here I thought you were going to say, we're Judge Dredd. I am the law. Form arms. Torsos and legs. And I'll form the head. I don't know. I guess it could just be me. It could just be a bunch of other stuff. But aren't you always left wondering every now and again, what comes after life? It's not so much a religious question, a matter of faith. It's more of a, hey... In that one scenario in Terminator 2, where Sarah Connor sees the nuke go off and she becomes a Skellington, what happens after that? Well, she becomes Jack Skellington and rules over Halloween Day. And What's this? What's this? There's cyborgs everywhere. What's this? What's this? It's always robots here. <laughs> I tried so hard to think of the next line, but I couldn't. So I've just been thinking about different properties that kind of take that idea and I for one kind of enjoy the different approaches we get for that sort of stuff. Now while some of them are more overt there are a few that are a bit more subtle to get the ball rolling and I know my two co-hosts here aren't so much into my nerd game for squids but Splatoon happens to be one of these post-apocalyptic scenarios. Everything that's going on is happening on a future version of Earth where at some point, according to the different lore you find in the single player, you find out that all of the continents went underwater. So it's sort of a global climate change end result, I guess. In a world where paint is the most valued resource. So I'd like to imagine that this happens at some point after Waterworld happens. Is this about the same time that the Jetsons are living above the rising water and the clouds from all the pollution of the previous generations? That's why they fly around everywhere and everything's on stilts? I was always down for the fan theory that the Flintstones actually coexisted and the people that lived up in the sky just never spoke of the cave people down in the surface world. Oh, there's an entire movie about this, gentlemen. The Jetsons meet the Flintstones. A Hanna-Barbera classic. You know, I don't think I've ever watched that. It's actually incredibly good, and really honestly, if I remember correctly, the premise is that the world of the Flintstones is the past, and the world of the Jetsons is the future of the same planet. Huh. I guess the way that ties back to Splatoon is eventually you have the sea life take over the surface and a few of them sort of start mimicking traits that humans had. It was weird, but definitely an underlying cautionary tale about the environment. So I don't know, maybe the Jetsons happened after Waterworld, but before Splatoon? I can only assume, based on Harvey Birdman, attorney at law, the Jetsons did come back to try and sue previous generations for the destruction of the Earth and the unsafe conditions that they, the Jetsons, had to live in. 
They didn't win the court case because, well, you should never hire Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. I'm pretty sure there was a game based off of him as well. It was like a short little adventure game. And I think there were plenty of cameos from Street Fighter characters there. (laughs) Well, speaking about post-apocalyptic games, one that I was never good at but enjoyed watching others play was Metroid. Oh, yeah, in the far-flung future. Yeah. I would have to say my personal favorite watching experience was the GameCube version that they had. Metroid Prime? Yeah. Really great graphics. I thought the puzzles were fantastic. The map was big, but not overly painful in the beginning. Like, you know, it progressed and got more complicated as you got further along. But as to be expected, you get better. It has to get a little harder. But it was fun. I enjoyed it. As far as GameCube goes, I think the Prime Trilogy was kind of royalty. It was definitely one of the most celebrated franchises on that generation of Nintendo's console. It also aged really well. It did. It was heavily reliant on sleek-looking graphics, and for some reason those aged much better than you'd have expected. Yeah, it also helps that the controls were rather intuitive-slash-user-friendly. I think that is always a dilemma in going back to old games is Mm, yes the graphics might not be as great which detracts but then it's the actual interface the controller and the buttons and the way it's laid out and the way things work some games are just horrible at it like et from atari that was one of the worst yeah controls can definitely make or break a game and to hop back onto nintendo for just a second I just thought about it. Nintendo has this way, maybe almost an art form, about making games that for the most part are timeless in appearance. Whenever you start to play an old Super Nintendo game, are you ever insulted by what's on the screen graphically? Nope, not personally. And by that token, going to the Nintendo 64, which maybe some of the Nintendo 64 games didn't age quite as gracefully most of the games that Nintendo came out with have maintained a charm in their graphics, which I think is really a testament to Nintendo's style overall with their game development. If we're getting at Nintendo, Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker also graphically aged really well, and it kind of ties back to our main conversation topic because that version of Hyrule is post-aquatic apocalypse as well. It's basically... Waterworld, the Zelda game. I think that one, if I remember correctly, is supposed to be the follow-up to Ocarina of Time. Because I think they mentioned the Hero of Time. People ask too many questions about it, and so there's this... I was going to say this really tangled timeline that became canon because people (laughs) wouldn't stop bugging Nintendo to create one. Are you chronologically confused about the Zelda timeline? Good, we all are. I think their initial intent was none of it matters when it came. I mean, unless events are directly mentioned in a game, don't worry about it. Everyone had their fan theory of the timeline. And one of the best parts about that section of the fandom was that you were allowed to muse and consider what events took place in what order between games. But, you know, 
some people couldn't leave well enough alone, and eventually Nintendo was like, you know what, fine, have this art book. Also, here's a timeline. Also, it splits into three. Also, some of this doesn't exactly make sense, but too bad. It's official now. You guys asked for it. You got it. Now you can just be angry some more. Don't fan bases ruin everything eventually? Pretty certain we had a conversation about that last year. To me, the Zelda universe, I've always kind of viewed like spokes on a wheel. Like there's this core concept at the center that there is this hero named Link and that there is a princess in Jeopardy named Zelda and that there is the Master Sword and the quest to gain the Triforce to defeat this evil and to rescue the princess. Each one of these iterations is different, hence each spoke, but it all has the same core idea and concept behind it. Like the villain being a man-bear pig. Oh, he's 50% man, 50% bear, 50% pig. He's man-bear pig. That's 150% of something. That's who Al Gore was warning us about. That's 50 more percent than normal. I'm gonna pull it back a little bit, because I agree with you guys. There is something about the graphics that Nintendo did with a lot of their stuff that it's still acceptable and pleasing if you go back to an old game and try to play it. I haven't come across many that are frustrating to look at anymore. Because of the June 1st dare that I issued out, I went and dug up some stuff and tweeted about it. But one of the things that I dug up and didn't actually show was I found a cartridge for Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening DX. That's a good game. Good old GB color classic. Yeah. And you know what? It's really good. Like I spent some time playing it and I know it's not fantastic graphics, but it's still really vivid and enticing and I enjoy what I get to look at. And yeah, they just they did a really good job. I want to play that Switch remake so badly. Yeah, it turned out being pretty good. I gave it a shot, I want to say about a year ago. I'd recommend it. It's pretty neatly a good remake of what it used to be. I would say there were definitely some trappings in it that didn't have to be there and obviously were left in because they were decided as a hallmark of the original game. But I guess to not spoil it for you, Aaron, it's worthwhile. Well, I remember the Game Boy game very fondly. It was a nice little small adventure with a great soundtrack and a great feel. I just remember being invested in the story and the conflict, and it was a lot of fun. I think Link's Awakening was the first Game Boy game I ever owned personally, followed closely by Pokemon Blue. But this was the Link's Awakening original release before they added the deluxe release with all the Game Boy Color functionality. So I had to play yeah. mine in good old monochrome, pea green, and deeper green. Oh man, the best colors. And then later when I got the Game Boy Pocket, then I got to play it in good old black and kind of lightly brownish gray back screen. So, Aaron. Yes, sir. Did you ever get to consider any wonderful, not-so-wonderful, post-apocalyptic properties? Yes, I did. And, in fact, I'm excited to share one of them with you guys because it is one of my favorite 
worlds in general, and honestly, probably from my favorite novel of all time. This is the future of our Earth in a book called Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, where the world has since kind of collapsed due to fossil fuels running out, the ozone layer just getting completely screwed by pollutants, and just it's a worldwide economic breakdown. There's a dozen small wars going on around the world with different countries. But in this, we get a marvelous escape from it called the Oasis. Now, for those who don't know, Ready Player One is a very nostalgia-fueled adventure of a person who loves 80s culture and is on a quest to find Halliday's Easter Egg, the creator of this digital utopia called the Oasis. So I like this world a lot because it feels very possible that that could be a future for our Earth with all the things that are going on. The way VR is kicked off, it's not entirely out of the realm of reality. Give it another generation or two. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, if I'm being honest, I think we will have something equivalent to the Oasis in the next 20 years. I know that's a long time, but I think we'll have processors that can handle it. But it's going to have to be internet speeds that can support this huge influx of information right. being shot all across the globe. Did you know that the common term that I've seen used in a couple of news articles for Generation Z is Zoomer? Do you think whenever we're very old and they're just kind of getting old, we're going to hear the youngest generation then be like, okay, Zoomer? <laughs> I totally agree. And that's what they're going to say. It's not a question of if, it's just when. I just would like to imagine a world where Generation Z is considered the crotchety, unwavering, set in their ways traditionalist. Yeah, like Generation X is definitely getting there, and we're not too far behind. Come to think of it, it's not that far away when we're going to be like, hey, you millennials just don't understand. And it's like, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. Back in my day, I had to ride a bus with no seatbelts or air conditioning for 20 minutes to get to my elementary school. You kids these days, and all I had was a book. No electronic devices. Okay, I had a cassette tape player, so I could listen to the radio. Would they have even had that? Wait, are we talking about Gen X right now? No, I'm talking about me when I get old. We're talking about millennials. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did have cassette players, that's true. We had Walkmans. 80s and 90s culture has made a huge resurgence in pop culture in the last decade. So our generation has become super relevant again as far as pop culture goes. So we are the nostalgia generation. We are born in a very exciting time of great change and exciting frontiers that I think makes us very unique in so, so very many ways. So what I'm hearing is the TV show Dallas is going to make a return as a reboot. Love it. Love the idea. They've got lots of episodes and lots of themes to work with. I mean, they're rebooting a lot of our old childhood favorites, so why stop it there? Why not redo Dallas too? Now, if they could reboot the reboot of the show Reboot, 
I'd love. Do you it. mean a reboot of the reboot of reboot? Correct. Yeah, not the thing we got a while back on Netflix that tanked. I didn't even see it. With old fans and new fans, I never saw it either, but I've heard enough about it to know that it was not anything like what we grew up with. Which I understand, sometimes you need to change things up to make it fresh and to make it appealing to a younger audience. But I feel like Reboot would appeal to younger audiences today, minus the visual quality. Because that show, just like Transformers Beast Wars, did not age particularly well. You know, stuff that came out in 1994 computer graphics, not quite the same as 2005 computer graphics. Well, I mean, it's kind of all context. If you think about it, I'll still watch Toy Story. In fact, I watched it, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and... I'm totally fine with anything involving the toys, but dang, you put Andy or Sid in front of my face and I'm like, oh, geez. I think if anything, watching that first Pixar movie is a testament to how far Pixar has come as animators, because while Toy Story 1 is a very charming film, it is not as good as some of the more recent ones, at least visually. Yeah. The story is good. The story is solid. Voice work solid. And for what it was back then, considering Toy Story is over 20 years old now, mind-blowing. I mean, we are very spoiled now with the level of CGI art that could be put onto screen now. So, it's really interesting. It's coming up on its 25th birthday. Oh my goodness. Release date, November 19th, 1995. Oh my, yeah. El Capitan Theater got it on the 19th. Okay, okay. So they got an early release. So yeah, in 2015, Tina turned 20 years old. Just a few short months. It sounds like it'll turn 25 this year then. Yeah, that's why I said it's turning 25 this year in a few months. That's awesome. We should do a Pixar appreciation thing. So Mike, weren't you talking about a certain Pixar film that kind of took place after a large cataclysmic event? Yes, and I have many questions about some of the functions because... Whenever he shoved all the trash into his body squishing container, he never actually condensed it to make it smaller like his unit name describes. He just made it into a square. But Wally... Wait, what does his unit name describe? Wally is short for Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class. Well, that's interesting. And he's I mean, supposed to compact and reduce the amount of waste that's laying around to clean up earth for humanity's return after being sent away to allow the wally units to do some work for a couple hundred years i don't know i thought it seemed a little bit odd but really there's nothing there particularly that said he had to compact it you might say that trash is well stacked now it is the most stacked and very beautifully stacked on top of it and fancy designs, much like buildings. Yeah. I, I think Wally had a unique situation because I think it dabbled in two sides. Clearly, a post apocalyptic environment in the sense that Earth has been ravaged by what we can only assume is humanity's bad choice. And we left to allow the cleanup to allow us the hope of returning. Well, by and large, it was. And at the same time, there is a small, I would call, dystopian situation in the sense of the spaceship itself. 
the autopilot, Otto, who has a very similar visual as HAL 9000, and how Otto decided to follow its own directions and not listen to the captain when the captain told it to do things. But I do think the movie overall leans way more in the post-apocalyptic environment more than the dystopian situation of that moment. Yeah. I mean, something definitely had to make them leave Earth. A lot of the creators in these that we've discussed, it sort of is just a species-wide hubris that we have as humans, where we make something and it's like, oh, that's our downfall, I guess we're out, guys. Yeah, it seems to be a variety of things that come out in the post-apocalyptic-style situations. You know, you look back at something like Soylent Green, where we end up using humanity to feed humanity. So buy your own bag of Soylent off of the internet. Just make sure it's not made of people. Is it made of people? That would be Soylent Squeam. (laughs) Wouldn't that be the frozen dessert version of it? That's a Soylent Smoothie. Ugh. Smoothly Soylent. Smooth Witch. These are just starting to sound like laxatives. <laughs> it might also be a laxative. I think Soylent Green is almost exclusively a laxative to some people. Look, as long as it doesn't throw off your equilibrium, you'll be fine. You like how I did that? Huh? 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 I see. I was going to comment more, but then I realized, oh wait, equilibrium's not post-apocalyptic, it's dystopian. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. At some point, we're going to have to find room for a dystopian future chat. Oh, yes, we have to. We have to talk about Metropolis if we do. But I guess since we're talking about that semi-future kind of one, what about The Matrix? Yeah. Starring everyone's favorite cowboy from Pee-wee's Playhouse, Lawrence Fishburne. He is my favorite cowboy. Yeah, I think that one also had that same implication of... Well, humans made AI that was too great. It, it's almost like a different take on the Terminator potential feature where we made AI. Oops, AI decided we're not good for them. Except this AI is like, nah, you're still good for something. And then you show off a Duracell and it's like, ooh, imagery. Yeah, I would also jump with that to two movies I feel are rather similarly connected in the sense of who was in them. The Postman and Waterworld. They both show humanity has clearly done something causing the Earth to spin out of control in some fashion, i.e. Waterworld. We allowed the sea levels to rise so high that there's no land. Except for like a little place. Waterworld was a result of nuclear war. Yeah, all the nuclear war kind of wrecked the atmosphere and it caused the temperatures to rise, which melted the polar ice caps, thus covering the world in water. And the Postman was very interesting in the sense that it kind of pitched a similar end result with the plot of the Doom War destroying almost all of the world's technology and plunging everyone into the second dark age. Does that also star Kevin Costner? Boy, howdy it does. Yeah, that's interesting that he played in two post-apocalyptic movies. He sure does love those post-apocalyptic movies. 
I can imagine they're fun. It's his way of getting back to Dances with Wolves and trying to play Indians and Cowboys. Except his cowboy didn't do very well. <laughs> right. Now, how do you guys feel about Dr. Zayas? Dr. Zayas? You'll have to tell me who that is. Dr. Zayas? Do you mean Amadeus? Dr. Amadeus, Zayas, Dr. Amadeus. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, 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 Dr. Zayas. Rock me, Dr. Zayas. You damn dirty apes! I was on Earth all along. Oh, yeah, that's right. Planet of the Apes is technically post-apocalyptic. Yeah, okay, okay. If you go with the very old ones, I don't know enough about the newest makes to set it in place. You animals. You blew it up. Okay, first of all, the remakes are incredible. And yes, both of them are considered post-apocalypse because it's after the collapse of mankind, essentially, where mankind is surviving in small enclaves throughout the world. And apes have formed their own society. I definitely recommend seeing the new ones. The first one starred James Franco and kind of introduced the characters, the apes, and orangutans and monkeys and all that. And then the story spirals from there. It's very good. So good. And yes, the original one with Charlton Heston also is post-apocalyptic because it's after mankind has long since been laid to rest and... The planet is ruled by apes. Now, gentlemen, I'm going to sidetrack us back to the postman because I have to ask this question. Is Death Stranding just a somewhat eccentric version of the postman? He rides around with a baby that screams when enemies show up and he's got a flashlight that only sees like two feet in front of him and he's trying to deliver mail to everybody. Sounds almost like the Postman, except the Postman rode around on a horse and not a motorcycle. Yeah, it really gives you an insight onto the toils and struggles of the common man, even in post-apocalypse society. I mean, nobody should take a baby out there. Short answer, no. But for you, Mike, sure. That's the safest answer. (laughs) So, I guess I'm gonna go ahead and walk us out. But before we do, I'm gonna ask the audience a question. So, what post-apocalyptic properties do you tend to like just pick one pick your favorite and just slap it up on there somewhere on social media my question for you dear listeners is if you were to survive whatever apocalypse befalls humanity and you wake up in the post-apocalyptic wasteland What would be your role and function? What would you try to do? What would you try to accomplish? My question to you is, which game is more post-apocalyptic? Pikmin or Planetarian? The reverie of a little planet. And why is it Pixel Force Left 4 Dead? (laughs) Thanks for listening to Banter Banter, guys. Happy post-4th of July. Or otherwise, happy last few days off from work, if you did work. Just go ahead and rate us on iTunes, as usual. And share us. Let some friends know what we're doing over here. You know, the good stuff, like talking about old movies nobody cares about, because we're millennial slash Gen Xers. And 
I guess otherwise, if you're going to avoid any kind of post-apocalypse-inducing scenario, have it be the one where you're not on fire. Follow the hosts of Banter Banter on social media. On Facebook, at Banter BanterCast. On Twitter, at Banter underscore cast. You could reach Manny at Brogar, C-R-E. You could find Aaron at 8BitWizard. The 8 is Roman numerical. You can find me on Twitter at Mike8Time, the number 8. The podcast cover art was provided to us by Blaze Animator, based on original art design by at Bobbin underscore Goblin on Twitter. Our intro and outro theme is called Bad Attraction by Brad Sucks, off of his album title, I Don't Know What I'm Doing. Give it a listen, or consider buying it. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas.